On this week's episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Gering-Ladd. Dr. Gering is a theologian, poet and artist. She has an MFA in poetry from Cornell and PhD from Duke. As an artist and theologian, she has spent a great deal of time thinking about how to communicate truthfully, honestly and with beauty. She's also spent time thinking about truth and storytelling and what they mean for the practices and habits of listening to and speaking about God to oneself and to others. She's taught workshops on story and storytelling and likes to spend her time writing, painting, teaching, editing, translating and being with her husband Jim and two daughters, Lucy and Naomi. I met Steph about 10 years ago and I'm always glad when we get the chance to talk about, well, well, anything really, but most especially about words and faith and God and beauty. I always walk away better for having talked to her. Well, Steph is with us today and we're talking about story. Story is a practice that sparks deeper love for God, for ourselves and for others. And um, story as it relates to um, gospel and good news. And that's often how um, the story of Jesus is framed in Christianity is around words like gospel and truth and um, good news. And so I think when we think about those concepts, they, they're really big. And so it seems important to give some kind of definition. So maybe the first thing, Steph, that would be helpful is maybe just to, to, to unravel first just the idea of story and what, mm-hmm. what is story. Yeah, one of the striking things to me about story is that it's really flexible more or less anyone can make up more or less any story about more or less anything. <laughs> and if the story's pitched the right way and told well, that story can have a lot of power to move people to get them to do or believe or commit to things. It's really persuasive, but it's not really anchored ethically or even anchored in any particular way in the world. Stories can have all kinds of relationships to the world. Sleeping Beauty, for example, is a story and it's connected to our world. It's about humans, but no one telling it is claiming that this is a story that actually happened at a particular time in history to particular people. Advertising is constantly telling stories and it's also always a story that's connected to the world. It's making strong claims about how things are, that if you drive this car, then you'll be sexy or important or happy or all of those. And those are powerful claims, but they're not actually true in any substantial way. And they're not actually usually good for us. They're good for the bank accounts of the people doing the advertising. And maybe that's why people have a harder time with using the notion of story um, related to gospel or to truth, because in some ways it feels like that means that something happens to the gospel if it's simply a story. So then what does that mean Mm -hmm. for the gospel? And then the kind of story the gospel is claiming to tell if all kinds of people can make, um, can tell stories without any kind of ethical rootedness or um, even like sense of reality or truth behind it. Although probably story has truth to it in some degree or another. I think you can make a good argument that 
any compelling story has some kind of connection to truth if you are willing to have a pretty broad understanding of what truth is. So even a story like Sleeping Beauty is connecting to something that is true about human beings, even though it's not claiming to be factually true. Mm. But I do think that the gospel is totally unique in terms of stories or it's a very particular kind of story that is not like Sleeping Beauty and not like advertising because it is very much claiming to be a story that happened at an actual time to actual people. And there are lots of historical accounts that are making the same claim, but unlike most of those accounts, the gospels are also claiming that this story has huge implications for who we are now today, how we should live, what our lives mean. And like advertising, actually, the Gospels are aiming to be persuasive. They're aiming to be life-changingly persuasive. Mm, And it's interesting because we might resonate with that word persuasive, or we might be a little, it might make like a little bit, feel a little prickly. Um, Yeah, I think we, most of us have probably been in some conversation where someone is trying to persuade us of something and it feels deeply uncomfortable or, or more than that. I mean, like used car salespeople are the, maybe the classic example here. (laughs) So persuasion can feel really double-edged and I think persuasion and manipulation can have a lot of overlap. And advertising, again, advertising is aiming to persuade us, but it does not have our best interests at heart at all. And there's a there's a theologian named David Bentley Hart who makes an argument in a book on beauty about persuasion. And his claim is that persuasion is violent unless it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think what he means by that is that beauty is a kind of invitation. Beauty is something that we voluntarily want to get closer to. There's another a philosopher named Elaine Scarry who writes about beauty in that way and says that beauty is rare in the world because it is something for which we willingly decenter ourselves. What she means by that is that normally we are really invested in staying at the center of our own perception of the world. We want to be in the middle and we see everything in terms of how it relates to us and where it is in relation to us and what it means for what we want and whether we can get it. And beauty, when we actually encounter something that strikes us as beautiful, it often has the effect of making us want to put that that thing, whether it's music or a person or an animal or art at the center of our frame of reference, at the center of our perception, so that we're willing to follow it. We are willing to literally center ourselves around that instead of around ourselves. Ooh, so when I hear you talk about David Bentley Hart and this idea that persuasion is violent unless it's beautiful, and then 
how Elaine Scary talks about talks about beauty is that we want to center ourselves towards it, and we do that voluntarily. How would you say that that fits into us thinking about Christianity and the the gospels or the story of the gospel? Well, I think that image that Elaine Scarry has about beauty being something that we will follow, that if it moves away from us, we want to keep it in our, in our perception, and so we will follow it. I think it's no accident that that is what Jesus is constantly saying to people, follow me, and that he walks up to strangers, and according to the Gospels, the only thing that he says is, follow me, and they drop everything they were doing and leave. And just follow him. And I think that Elaine Scarry's and David Bentley Hart's accounts there do a good job of giving us one picture of something that that is going on when people drop everything and follow Jesus, that they have encountered a person who is beautiful and is attractive and is compelling in a nonviolent, but in a really powerful way, in a way that's different from anyone they've ever come across before. And they are so curious and so drawn in that it feels worth it just to go, just to follow in order to stay close to that person. Well, often when people did encounter Jesus, he was telling stories even to those who were closest to him. Um, parables are what specifically come to mind. Why do you think that is? Stories capture our imaginations. Stories engage us at a, a deeper level. And like we were talking about at the beginning, this is the power of story that it is so fluid and that it is it can be an invitation. We can imagine our way into it. We can imagine ourselves as part of the story. We can imagine the story as part of our story. And there are there's a lot of room for listeners in a story in a way that there's not really room in the same way in a really blank truth claim you can kind of either assent to the truth claim or you can disagree with it, but you don't usually, most people I think do not usually go away from a blunt truth claim, just turning it over and over and over in their minds and not being able to stop thinking about it. Stories are invitations on all kinds of levels. They're, they are, they're invitations in the sense that most people like listening to stories. They're sort of an easy way in. They give us images and characters. and But they're also invitational in the sense that you, when people listen to stories, they can imagine themselves inside those stories. They can imagine themselves as different characters in those stories they can imagine what they would do like this character is doing this thing what would I do and a lot of the parables involve exactly that kind of thing where one character takes an action and then three different characters respond in different ways to that action and so you 
really get to try on, well, which, which one am I most like, or would I have done something entirely different? I was just going to say, is that why you think Jesus is using stories? I do think so. I think it's because they have that invitational power. And I think like in talking to you in the past too, it engages people's curiosity. Uh, mm-hmm. And to, like you said, their ability to consider their own lives in light of this story, their own lives inside of this story, and that it works through questions and mm-hmm. um and so then it's almost like the story isn't just it's it's similar to advertising in that it's in it's making a claim about something, but in a way that is persuasive, mm-hmm. but also um good and true um mm-hmm. how do you think that we get to that kind of storytelling or yeah i think that that we today have kind of a double role in 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 comparison to the characters in the gospel. So in some ways, we're like the disciples. And in some ways, well, some ways maybe because Jesus is not in the flesh here anymore, we are actually also in some ways like Jesus as the storytellers. But in some ways, we're also very much still the crowds who are listening to Jesus's story. And I think it's worth starting by considering ourselves as as the crowds and the disciples trying to make sense of Jesus's stories and trying to find ourselves in those stories and trying to do the imaginative work of mapping those stories onto our lives and seeing what we get because evangelism comes from the term for good news it that's that's the root of it in greek and we are not ever going to tell the story of the gospel as good news unless we really have discovered it as good news ourselves and this is where that narrow idea of truth i think can get us into trouble too because we've if we've been around church as much we've been told a lot that the gospel is good news. And so there's going to be a part of us that just says, well, of course, yes, of course, I know that the gospel is good news, but I may know that in my head and yet not feel it really at all for my life. And the way that I talk to other people about it is going to be it's going to have a lot more depth and it's going to be a lot more persuasive. There's going to be a lot more joy in it if I do feel that for my own life. That is really, really true. How would you say that the the craft or the art or the use of story helps us with that? If that is a practice or a habit, like how does the practice of story or the habit of story help us um, to discover? Yeah. I think 
it goes back to what is most powerful about story and what is most powerful about story is all of the different levels that it can connect with us on. And so I think, especially if we're in the situation where we have a kind of intellectual assent that yes, this is, this is good news, but we don't have a very strong sense of this feels like good news to me, then doing a storytelling practice about our own lives and spending some time really trying to formulate the story of our lives or of the part of our lives where the, the connection between the good news and us is not feeling very clear, that can be really helpful. Do you want me to talk about a, maybe a more specific storytelling practice that we could do? Yeah, I love that. Or, or multiple story yeah. practices that people could do. Yeah. One is based on a really classic understanding of story, which says that a story is a, a plot, a character, and a setting, or a character, a plot, and a setting, whatever order. And taking that and picking one of those and trying to describe what that is in your life right now. And setting is one of the ones that I feel like we don't spend as much time thinking about there. It's, it's the backdrop. It's not the thing that jumps out. And so it can be really interesting to focus on that, to bring that into the foreground and try to consider it for your life. What is, what is the setting of your life? What world do you live in? What are the rules of that world? What's possible in that world and not possible in that world? What obstacles does that world give you? What resources does it give you as a character? And just sitting down and one of the, one of the really classic pieces of advice that's given in creative writing workshops is that you want to show and not tell. And like all kinds of advice, this is when you sometimes want to break you. Sometimes you very much do want to tell explicitly. But what it means is that sensory information is really powerful. And this is one of the ways that story does connect to us on a lot of different levels. So if you say, Tom was very angry, that is telling us. If you say, Tom took the plates off the shelf and hurled them one at a time against the wall. That shows us. And there is a kind of power in the showing that is not there in just the plain statement that Tom was angry. So in describing your own life and in describing the setting of your life, think about smells, think about tastes, think about visual things that you see, think about things you hear think about things you feel on your skin and put those into the description of the setting. And I think you will, you will be surprised by some of the things that you discover. When I hear you talk about that exercise, I think the thing that comes to my mind is that it, um, it gives me the opportunity to place myself in the setting mm -hmm. that I am, I'm in and then become curious about, where is it that God isn't, um, where I can't see God or God's story 
like merging with mine or that there is good news here at all and then maybe there's a possibility even in doing the exercise that I'm surprised by where I Mm -hmm. see God doing work or where I believe God is being present in ways that feel like good news um so it's almost like it gives opportunity for me to see in a way that I've Mm -hmm. not been able to see Um, absolutely yeah I think that's that's exactly one of the things that that can do well then I remember too at one point um maybe it was even as we were talking about this conversation before like a lot of the times Jesus does say come and see Mm -hmm. Um, that is the invitation that he's giving and there's this part of storytelling maybe is the exercise or practice of of actually seeing in telling our own stories or in listening Mm -hmm. to the stories of others we begin to see in ways we've not been able to see otherwise Mm -hmm. yeah do you have a piece of writing oh are you gonna no go ahead (laughs) were you going to say something I guess, yes, I was going to say something. What I was going to say is that the seeing can include seeing God in places where we, where God has always been, but we have not seen God before. Um, do you have a piece of writing or a kind of example for us that we could listen to? Sure. This is, it is not exactly the same exercise that I was just describing. So it's not just a raw description of the setting of my life, but it is a piece of writing that is heavy on setting. It is for a a prayer at church. And I took Psalm 139 and tried to rewrite it as though I were the psalmist and I were writing it about my world and to try to reset it in my context. So this is my version of Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down in front of the computer and I do not get up again, because although I went to order diaper cream, I am now checking whether those rock climbing pants from the ad on Facebook come in size tall. You search out my path from the kitchen to the bathroom and back to the bathroom and are acquainted with all the ways I get irritable when Lucy, who bless her heart, wants to wipe her own bottom, uses half a roll of toilet paper again. Even before I open my mouth, when I find Naomi on the kitchen table in a lake of milk, you know whom I will try to blame. You surround me more than the Wi-Fi signal in all our rooms. You can see inside our walls to touch me with your hand. This is amazing and overwhelming and incomprehensible. What if I wanted to get away from you? How would I do it? If I rode on one of Elon Musk's rockets, you'd be wherever we fly. If I lie down in the country of death, you are there too. If I learn to rise up with the dawn, if I get myself on the next manned mission into the Mariana Trench and figure out a way to stay down there with the sea cucumbers, 
even there you will lead me, and I won't have gotten outside your right hand. If I say, this is 2022, the place where 2020 and 2021 went to die, even in these dark years, they are not dark to you. Their night is bright as daylight, because darkness cannot stay dark with you. You made my white blood cells so they can learn the protein spike on a virus. You taught my blood to acquire antibodies from my mother's blood when I was still breathing amniotic fluid. I praise you for I am an outrageous creature, wild beyond my own imagining, and you made me. You saw how all the parts of me went together how breath wove into my body deep inside the earth. You saw me when I was shapeless. When time had not started for me, your book had an entry already for each of my days. If it is beautiful, you thought it up. What must it be like inside your mind, God? How huge it must be. If it is big enough to hold dark matter, stuff we only know about because someone calculated that our galaxy would fly apart without it, you will never run out. I wake up and I'm still here with you. And God, the people who are evil, the people in charge of running secret syphilis experiments on black men and putting coronavirus testing stations in all the rich white neighborhoods and marketing formula to African moms to stop them breastfeeding and kidnapping girls for brothels and so much more. Could you take them out? Look how they desecrate the treasures you made. Look how they curse you. I'm on the right side here, on your side. I think. I hate the people who are setting your world on fire. Those people are my enemies, even when they're me. Search me, oh God, look into my heart and my racing, racing thoughts. Show me what you find there. Make me strong enough to bear seeing. Lead me home to be with you. Thanks so much, Steph. Um, I hope that we can, yeah, develop this as our own practice and habit, seeing ourselves, and it's just really beautiful. Thanks for joining us today for this conversation. I hope if you do the practice on setting and your story, that it helps you to see yourself in light of goodness and beauty, and goodness and beauty worth giving. Next week, we'll be joined by Apricot Irving, who is a writer and author of The Gospel of Trees, her memoir of growing up as a missionary's daughter in Haiti. She also reported on post-earthquake recovery in the north of Haiti for the radio programme This American Life. She'll be joining us to talk about the practice of lament. I hope you'll join us too. <laughs> the endings are the hardest part and then you're like wait I'm, I, I'm ready to be done but the sentence is not done what do I do now <laughs>
<laughs> that is a hundred percent true. I am ready to be done with sentences. It's not.